What's up, Stitches? Welcome back to the land of historic needlework. What a good place to be, right? Today's episode is a delightful interview with Dr. Serena Dyer, historian of dress, consumption, and material culture. Her current research revolves around patriotic fashion and buying British. Serena got her PhD at the University of Warwick and is now a lecturer in the history of design and material culture at De Montfort University. She was previously the curator of the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture and assistant curator at the National Portrait Gallery, so clearly she does it all. Serena's published a whole lot, but I'm most excited for her books coming out this year and early next year. The first is called Material Lives, Women Makers and Consumer Culture in the 18th Century, and the second is called Material Literacy in 18th Century Britain, A Nation of Makers. That one is edited with Dr. Chloe Wigston-Smith of the University of York. Material Lives comes out in February 2021 and Material Literacy in October 2020, which is so soon. Oh, I'm so excited. I truly cannot wait to read all about women buying and making and stitching and living. Yes, women making stuff in the 18th century. Uh, A beautiful intersection of so many of my interests and hopefully yours too. Okay, here's the interview. Question number one, the origin story. How did you get interested in the history of dress, consumption, material culture, and all of that stuff? And then a secondary question, how does needlework fit into your study of material culture and consumption more generally? So I would say that I have had three sort of formative moments and that needlework has kind of been quite central or needlework in a very broad sense Mm -hmm. has been quite central to all of them. So my first formative moment um, was when I was about 10 years old and I was really into Jane Austen, as were we all. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I really wanted a Regency dress. Um, And my mother helped me make my first horrible machine sewn quilting cotton, probably actually poly cotton, I don't remember, Regency dress. Um, and it was so that we could go to the Jane Austen Festival, <laughs> which which I believed at the time other people went to in costume. They did not. I was, no. the, I was the first member of the public to ever go to the Jane Austen Festival in Regency dress. Um, and my photo was in the Jane Austen Centre for years. as like this 10-year-old in Regency dress. I am obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Wow. My dream. Oh. Good. <laughs> so, so it's I've been interested from an early age mm-hmm. and and that kind of that developed for a long time alongside deciding to do a history degree and stuff and I had a company making uh, reproduction dress and um, bonnets and things um, yeah. so if you go to Jane Austen's house at Chawton and try on yeah. a bonnet I made it Get out of here. I did that. I try, I went there and I tried on the bonnet. There you go. Oh, wow, I'm talking to a celebrity. Wow, amazing. <laughs> so I, I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff while doing like my history degree. And I kind of, I didn't really think that the two were necessarily very combinable um, at the time. But then I had an amazing conversation. This is formative moment number two. Okay. Um, I had an amazing conversation with uh, Dr. Hannah Gregg, who was one of my lecturers at York, who convinced me that as part of my undergraduate history degree, I could actually not only write it about dress, but make 
stuff as part of it. Oh, don't worry. Um, so I made I made two um, two hand sewn one seventeen eighties and one eighteen tens dress as part of my undergraduate history degree, um, and that kind of convinced me that I could be an academic and do fun making things with dress that were kind of the thing that I was simultaneously passionate about. Um, so that was the kind of the dress side of things and that's kind of where I was going for a long time but then consumption has wheedled its way in mm-hmm. um, and that is formative moment number three. Okay. Um, so this was when I was doing my MA uh, at York as well and I was desperately scurrying around the local archives trying to find anything that was dress related and I found a set of uh, fabric samples that were in West Yorkshire archives at Wakefield and these were it was an amazing set of samples and lace and gauze and ribbon some of the ribbon is beautiful one of them's got little tiny miniature 18th century shoes on it it's just ah! it's lovely <laughs> my dream well fine everything's fine <laughs> and uh, so this was these were samples that were sent to a woman called Lady Sabine Wynne mm-hmm. from her milliner in London, and it made me realise how central materiality and a knowledge of materials and textiles, and then more broadly making and needlework, were to the way that 18th century women shopped and consumed things. Um, so that's kind of how I and Sabine is is has been central to um what I've done since she's part of my book she's somebody that I keep coming back to Um, but she was my sort of gateway into seeing that there's this there's this connection between needlework and sewing and textiles and the way that people consumed that hadn't really been explored before Please tell me about your upcoming publications. You clearly have a lot going on. So I want to talk about your two uh, soonest. What's the grammar here? I want to talk about the two books that are coming out soonest. The first one is, I think, Material Lives, Women Makers, and Consumer Culture in the 18th Century. Oh, my God. It's like you literally went into my psyche. I'm screaming. Um, Can you tell me more about Material Lives? I am clearly freaking out about it. Mm, so so material lives is um it kind of started with that same with that same connection that kind of conundrum of the fact that we talk about 18th century genteel and elite women as consumers really comfortably we talk about them as consumers they're mm-hmm. really central to that whole idea of there being a big air quotes consumer revolution in the 18th century right. um and we also know that they made needlework Right. So they, they're busy with their hands, they're doing stuff with needles, and then they're in shops buying things. But these were such completely disparate things in the literature, um, in the way that people have thought about this, that there was this disconnect between thinking not only of women, but of people in general, um, as makers and producers on the one hand, and consumers and buyers on the other hand. And I just thought that this seemed so wrong, that these two things are far more symbiotic and fluid <laughs> than we've really spoken about. Um, so so my first step was to, to look for women who made things, essentially. And then I realised that these women, in their making, they weren't just sort of 
recording their making. They weren't just um, practicing making for the sake of practicing making. It was far more complex than that. They were recording their consumption through their making and they were recording their own biographies through their making. Hence material lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was researching, the objects that I was looking at kind of transformed themselves into these material echoes of these women's lives. Um, and that these women, they often were either completely absent from the written historical record or what was there was so shaped by the men in their lives. So we might find their birth records, their marriage records, their death records and stuff written by their male relatives who had sparkling careers in Parliament or did something sort of manly. Um, but that we would never actually hear about the women beyond that they had married or, or been mother to these men. Um, but that through these material sources, their stories were enduring. Um, and that through, you know, through stitches, through brush strokes, because some of these objects are paintings, but paintings of needlework, um, that they were kind of forcing themselves to not be expunged from history. It's this kind of, no, this is my life. This is how I'm going to record it. This is the medium through which I feel comfortable communicating. Materialized focuses on four women, um, one of whom is Sabine Wynne. Um, we've been on a very long journey together. Sabine Wynne made a series of uh, dressed prints, which are essentially prints where you cut out the the garment sections of what the people are wearing and then you paste bits of fabric behind them they're amazing um and they so in in broad terms dressed prints vary in quality hugely um but Sabine Wynne's are absolutely meticulously put together Um, I've never even of these things I am where have I been (laughs) (laughs) they're not they're not very widely written about so Alice Dolan has written an article about them before and then they very occasionally come up in things about decoupage Mm, um, and and decorative arts things Uh, but they've not really been written about before mostly because they're (laughs) they've not been written about before in English very much because they're primarily a continental European practice. Ah, okay. And Sabine Wynne was from Switzerland. So she's kind of brought this practice over. But they're they're amazing. So they they have, I won't go into the entirety of the kind of biographical information that they hold, but they have so many resonances with various moments in her life. Um, Some of the textiles that she uses are embroidered and I think they are embroidered by her own hand. Um, and she's also done things like put uh, down the front of men's uh, waistcoats and jackets. She's done little French knots for the buttons and done little buttonholes. And they're, they're <laughs> stunning. They're really beautiful. Um, so she was my kind of my gateway, my gateway material life. Um, but she's she's probably she's very biographical but she's probably the least biographical of the women that I look at um so another one is Barbara Johnson um who a lot of dress historians have heard of but um 
I have reframed, I think, how we think about her quite a lot um, and dug up quite a lot more information about her. Um, and I've essentially argued that her album, which is, it's this amazing album for people that aren't familiar with it, that is, oh, uh, 122, if my memory serves me correctly, um, fabric samples taken from every dress that she ever had made um, from when she was eight to when she was in her 80s. I've, I've written about her before, so she was in my PhD, um, and then I've written an article about her as well um, that's in the Journal for 18th Century Studies. But there I was writing about the album as this kind of um, account book, which I think it is, this kind of material account book. She is um, doing the whole accounting for herself thing, but through textiles. Um, and in the book, I've kind of I've taken that a little bit further down a kind of autobiographical route um, and the way that she's trying to sort of negotiate and frame her life as a never married woman in 18th century England of that kind of background. And actually that there are all these biographical moments which are materialised in the album. And when you piece when you piece this album back together with some of those other with some of the other sources that we have about her, they tell you a lot more about what she's trying to do. Woman number three um, is Anne Franklin Lewis. So people might be familiar with her watercolors. Um, so she painted a series of thirty. Three, I should know this, <laughs> 33 <laughs> watercolours uh, that are her, they're known as the dress of the year watercolours, even though the first, it's only the first few that are actually captioned dress of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been something that a lot of people have, um, have used before, but we've not really known much about her. Um, and I am delighted to say that I now know an awful lot about her um, and, and she's wonderful and amazing. And she's another one of these people where her, her husband was a disastrous MP, but her son and grandson had these sort of grand Victorian political careers. And if it wasn't for these watercolours, she would just be, oh, the, the grandmother of so-and-so. We wouldn't know anything about her so much. Um, so yes, yeah, so these watercolours are amazing. There's that resonance with um, uh, with fashion plates at the time with the, the dress of the year caption because that's the sort of the pocket plate, pocketbook uh, fashion plate caption that was often used. Um, but the most fascinating thing I think about them is that she also depicts herself making things. So she is, she is a woman making watercolours of herself. I think they're of herself. Um, in dress in which she is also making another object and and there are resonances in the objects sort of across the images as well um, so there's just, there's just this amazing sort of um, cyclical nature there um, and self-referential nature to what she's doing and she's also, some of her watercolours are the only visual representation of some really key, important sartorial moments in the 18th century. That um, is wild. 
So, so my favourite is the the Windsor uniform from 1789. Um, so this was the the woman's version of the men's Windsor uniform, which was a more ubiquitous thing. Um, and it was worn at a ball to celebrate the temporary recovery of George III. And this is the only visual representation of it is her watercolour. Um, <laughs> no, it's amazing. And it's it puts these... So the uh, one of the things that's kind of key to this is these uh, hair bandeau that are embroidered with God Save the King and various oh. sort of patriotic slogans. Um, and it's it's amazing to see these these objects actually as they would have been worn. That needlework yeah. sort of in practice. And my last woman is uh, Letitia Powell, um, and she made miniature doll-sized versions of her own garments. <laughs> so um, just like shook out of the room. I can't even handle that. <laughs> So she she started this when she was about 13. Um, she was the daughter of a London merchant, so must have had access to all kinds of bits and pieces and, and silks and fashionable things. Um, she started when she was 13. She carried on to when she was, I think, around 50. Um, and there are, I think, 13 of them that still survive, but it is highly likely that there were more the the most sort of spectacular of them the one that that people might have come across is the one of her wedding dress which is very explicitly a miniature version of her own wedding dress um which is gorgeous um and it's very very well made and follows a lot of the time the same processes of making as um, full-size garments would have done with a few kind of alterations for getting around dolls arms and things like that um, but what fascinates me about her is her biography is not just told through these little snapshot moments of different garments but also the development of her own making skill so the the one when she was 13 again to be very kind is naively made <laughs> versus you know when she's in her 20s when she gets married the ones that she makes as a mother are beautifully made so there's this process of learning how to make that is simultaneously documented in these dolls so she's she's wonderful and you can even see things like i think um when she's beginning to teach her daughters how to sew and there's there's some that have a, a strange mixture later on of very well made and not so well made that i think are these collaborative efforts across generations um yeah, so they are my four women, and I argue that between them, they um, they offer us this insight into how women recorded their own lives in a way that isn't diaries and isn't letters and isn't memoirs and isn't uh, account books even, but that is intensely material and yet intensely biographical at the same time. Um, and, and a lot of them, as I say, cross that kind of yes, these women are from that genteel, we are consumers, we're the ones getting mocked in the press for our love of luxury and our love of silks. But they know how to make things and they understand this material world. They understand what they're doing. And it's very deliberate. Um, and is an entirely different kind of association between making and buying to that which I think we've already, we're already comfortable and familiar with. 
This is so deeply up my alley. I'm just going to be screaming about it forever for the rest of my life. So thank you. And when does it come out exactly? So that comes out in February. Okay. So a little bit of time to, to wait for it still. And you have another book coming out also. Yeah. Which is, you're everywhere. You're doing it all. You are Corona who you're just making <laughs> it happen. So the second book is it's called Material Literacy in 18th Century Britain, A Nation of Makers. So what is that second book about? When does that come out? Tell me everything. So uh, Material Literacy is an edited collection of essays um, that I co-edited with Dr. Chloe Wigston-Smith. A gem, yes. Um, And it's coming out with Bloomsbury in October, so slightly, slightly less long to wait. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Which I keep thinking is ages away, but this summer has has gone very fast. So quickly. Um, so material literacy is again born out of that same that same dilemma really between consumption and making and that kind of um, consumer revolution versus industrial revolution that really characterized the 18th century and and yet are are not representative of what is necessarily going on in individual people's practice. Mm-hmm. So material literacy is about kind of bringing a bridging, but also breaking down that dichotomy between people that make things and people that buy things. Um, and argues generally that um, that this was a far more fluid, a far more fluid thing. That a lot more people in the 18th century understood how to make things. That you could go to a shop as a genteel person. You know, this isn't sort of milliners wanting to learn how to be milliners, but you could go to a, a shop as a genteel person and say, "Hey, teach me how to make a bonnet." Mm-hmm. And that 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 knowledge was for sale at the same time as the actual item was for sale. That making was present on shop floors um that people were learning how to make stuff at a very intricate level from a very early age so my chapter in the book um looks at how how material literacy was sort of enacted through shopping and the knowledge that a lot of women consumers would have had in the 18th century of how the things that they were buying were made. There's also some stuff about material illiteracy, which I am very mm-hmm. fond of. That um, just because I'm saying that it's it was important and and that knowledge of making was sort of prized and was taught and was ubiquitous, doesn't mean I, I think everybody was great at it. <laughs> That's material literacy, and yes, that is available for pre-order now and out in. Gosh, less than less than two months. What are other types of favorite needleworked objects that you have? Do you have any, like, you can talk about genres, specific objects? It's a gigantic question. I totally know. So my, unsurprisingly, my favorite needleworked objects in a traditional sense of embroidery and that sort of side of needlework are needleworked garments. Oh, yeah. when, when embroidery yeah. shows up on garments. Um, and... And accessories. I think some of my favourite pieces are accessories. Um, so there's some amazing muffs that um, that are in the book. Uh, that are in which book? <laughs> in material <laughs> lines, um, that are that are beautiful. That have these amazing embroidered um, embroidered designs on them around prints. Um, and Elizabeth Gurnard's done some amazing work on these as well. Um, 
and and there's a pair of shoes in the V&A as well and both of these things highlight the thing that I'm really passionate about I don't know if this has come across but the, the link between consumption and making yay um, so, um, so the shoes in the V&A are um they've got an embroidered design on the front which um Jenny Batchelor has managed to match up with um one of the the embroidered designs in the ladies magazine so there's this amazing link between women consuming this magazine as as literary consumers as well as material consumers buying all the bits to do this themselves doing the embroidery and maybe themselves but possibly having somebody else make it up into a shoe and just this amazing narrative of connections between different forms of consumption and different forms of making that are so intertwined in one object. Um, so that's definitely one of my favourite needlework pieces. The muffs are kind of similar in the sense that they are these these printed, um, printed images uh, printed on silk and you would go and buy the printed image and then you would integrate it into your design for your muff and do that yourself so again there's this connection between what you're buying and you're buying into certain types of uh, imagery and visual culture through these images as well and it just all kind of rolls together so it's these objects that are that are worn that are um that kind of express as I say that that hugely interconnected fluid world between making and consumption you are one of several people I've had on this podcast who both study making and do the making, which we love to see. So how do you think stitching and studying stitching intersect and interact in your work? And what have you learned from both sides of that? So I, as yet, I have not, beyond my undergraduate dissertation, I have not written specifically about my making in mm. an academic okay. arena. Um it's something that I intend to do. It's on my <laughs> coming projects list. Yeah. Um, but but that um, the way that my making has informed my academic work has been more. It's kind of everywhere and yet nowhere. So um, it's raised a lot of questions that I don't think I would have even thought of if I hadn't tried to make some of these things myself. Um, and my, my making is wildly varied. Um, so right now, for example, I have just finished um, an 1850 evening dress. Oh, screaming. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, is a, it's a plaid confection. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, and I am, I'm currently halfway through making some 1780s stays, so you know, Dresses and stays are not the same animal. Um, and I'm also embroidering an 1830 dress where I've taken the embroidery pattern from one of Ackerman's Repository of Arts magazines. Um, so they're, they're very different types of making. But I think of them as very different types of making. I don't know if the world at large thinks of them as very different types of making. And I think that that's one of the things that making has taught me, that it would be very easy to say, 
oh, you, you know how to make a dress and therefore you know how to do this other thing, or you know how to embroider and therefore you know how to make a waistcoat. No, <laughs> they are very, very different animals. Um, making and even the making of, of garments and of textile based things is incredibly diverse. Um, it's an incredible array of different skills that you need to know how to do these things. So then when I go and read, oh, I don't know, somebody's, somebody's diaries or letter where they're talking about making a thing or a variety of things, it makes a lot more sense to me why they know how to make some things and they don't know how to make others or how they're applying certain types of knowledge to certain situations, say, 18th century women's dress, which if if anybody has looked at this, museums is together with the largest, most scruffy of stitches um, that, you know, would not would not fly in um, in a modern hand sewing class. And there's been a tendency historically uh, in, in curatorial work to say, um, and I say this with great affection as a, as a former curator, <laughs> to say that the stuff that is well-made is professionally made and the stuff that is not well-made is um, amateur stuff. But that's not what those stitches mean. Those stitches are doing specific things. They're about knowledge of where the strain is going to be in that garment when you do need to use teeny tiny stitches and when you don't need to use teeny tiny stitches um so there's kind of economy of effort and they're also about remaking and things like that and until you start looking at the objects and realizing how these processes of remaking worked you don't necessarily understand that what do you think is the role of needlework in today's world a big theoretical question sorry <laughs> so I think um I mean I've sort of cheated in that I have obviously been religiously listening to your podcast, oh my God, thank you. podcast. <laughs> um, but I I actually think that the the mental health um advantages of needlework are are incredible um and yes I, ha I have been sewing a lot in lockdown but that hasn't been just procrastination. It has also been because it, it's a way of, of negotiating being in a confined space, but in a productive way and a way of expressing that, um, a way of expressing feelings and, and emotions and channeling them into something productive. Um, and my historian brain, then starts thinking about, well, how does that work in a, in a historical perspective as well? And, <laughs> and circles back around the material lives thing and the way that, that various restrictions and freedoms are channeled into, into needlework. Um, so it's, it's, from a personal perspective, it has both, um, needlework has been this sort of, this personal, escape from the world um but it's also made me think think back on on my own um historical research differently so it's it's kind of yeah it's the it's the the mental health perspective but also I guess interconnected with my own making and having had more time to work on that how how all of that together is is 
reinforming how I think about sewing in the past. How do we learn more about your work? Do you have anything you'd like to promote? Give me the publicity. Tell me everything. <laughs> um, I think we've established that I have a few books that people can buy. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so both Material Lives and Material Literacy uh, can be pre-ordered um, already. Uh, you can get both are available on Bloomsbury or from all good internet bookstores. Um, and so that that's, uh, that's I guess that's my main thing. Um, but I'm also just generally around on the internet. Um, <laughs> so my my Twitter handle is um, Serena underscore Dyer. Uh, I can be found on Instagram in multiple guises. Um, so my, my academic work is on, on Instagram as Serena Florence Dyer. And my historical sewing is on Instagram as dressing.history. Well, thank you so much, Serena. You are a gem. I'm really so happy I got to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the interview. What a good time, right? I mean, at least I think so. I am truly, truly so excited about Serena's upcoming books and specifically about the connections between making and buying in the 18th century, especially because that's something I think about a lot when looking at the objects I'm analyzing for my PhD. There's literature about consumption and literature about making, but almost nothing that combines them, and it's high time that gap is filled, so I am <laughs> so hyped. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for joining me for this interview. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Serena as much as I did. Now go out and stitch some stories and pre-order Serena's books and get excited about 18th century women's needlework. Bye!